sharpens iron. Oh yeah. If you didn't figure it out, you're not sleeping tonight. Get you jazzed up with the love for Jesus. You won't know what you're doing. Another night of talking old sermons, taking us back to the pre-revolutionary wartime. Very strong and intense pulpit of pre-1776. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, Patriots, so we're going to have another night, part two tonight, of this pretty amazing speech by, or sermon, by John Witherspoon, Dominion of Providence over the Passions of Men. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, setting it up before we go, but one thing to really keep in mind right now, in, in all seriousness, this is a pretty critical time between banking, between food, between home defense, all these things are important. Prepping gardens and sleep. You got all of them together, right? So one thing you do want to keep in mind is preserving your hard-earned cash. Patriots, despite the U.S. blowing through the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling in January, the leftist White House still refuses to reduce spending. While our national leadership has buried their heads in the sand when it comes to fiscal responsibility, it's all the more time for you to be proactive. Now would be a great time to diversify into gold with Birch Gold. In times of high uncertainty and instability, gold is king. It's dependable. Birch Gold makes it easy to convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in precious metals. Here's what you need to do. Text BARDS to 989898 to claim your free info kit on gold and then talk to one of their precious metal specialists. Think about it. To dig our country out of this mountain of debt, every single taxpayer in America would have to write a check for $247,000. And it's only getting worse. Protect yourself with gold today by texting BARDS to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews, you can trust Birch Gold to protect your future. Text BARDS to 989898 today. Remember, that's BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898 today. Text BARDS to 989898. You won't be disappointed. So I'm going to give a little more commentary tonight as I read through this. I don't know if we're going to get through the whole sermon tonight or if and maybe we'll continue it. We'll just see how it ends tonight, where it goes. Something to keep in mind about this. This was the sermon done on May 17, 1776, preached by John Witherspoon, and it's considered one of the most significant sermons in the history of this country. Now, he was preaching at Princeton, and this, this he was a Scottish-born pastor who had turned college president when he came over here. And on this day that he was preaching, it was called General Fast Day, appointed by Congress of the American Colonies for prayer and humble. Can you imagine this? Congress appointed General Fast Day as a day for American colonies for, for prayer and humble supplication before God in the face of an unknown and possible possibly war-filled future. Just kind of gives you an indication of the difference in the way our nation was then and the way it is now that's 
all been based on now about child worship and child sacrifice, I should say, not even worship, child sacrifice. And, of course, the only thing we do now, instead of having a humble day of general fast, we call it Super Bowl Sunday, and we pig ourselves down with hot dogs and potato chips and hamburgers. So this sermon was based on Psalm 7610, which I'm going to read here in a second. And it was entitled, The Dominion of Providence Over the Passions of Men. And, and it was widely regarded as one of the principal sermons which prepared the way for the Declaration of Independence, which Witherspoon himself would sign less than two months later. So Psalm 7610. In fact, I'm gonna I'll read 7610 and I'm gonna read the whole psalm. For the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath, you will gird yourself. That's 76.10. 70, Psalm 76 is God is known to in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. There he broke the flaming arrows, the shield and the sword and the weapons of war. Selah. You are resplendent, more majestic than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They sank into sleep, and none of the warriors could use his hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into a deep sleep, into a dead sleep, and even you are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? You are caused, You caused judgment to be heard from heaven, the earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. For the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath you will gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be, is to be feared. He will cut off the spirit of princes. He is feared by the kings of earth. One of the things to keep in mind about all of these older sermons is that the concept, God was very much portrayed as that in a place where we, as was said actually in the in the sermon I did the, other, the first night of this, which was two nights ago, which was the sinners in the hand of an angry God. That portrayal is very much about God having no concern for us and basically dangling us over the pits of hell and waiting for us to either repent or to die. There's a contextual part of this that has to be considered pretty carefully, and that's the state of the colonies at the time. And all of these sermons are being put in a time when you have a lot of people, you have a devout core of those that are church attendees, dedicated and deep in their faith, but you have many, many people that just came here to do whatever, and in fact, in a lot of the spiritual sense, in the early parts of the country around leading up to the revolution, the pastor's words were often about trying to shake people from their darkness and to, with the fear of God, bring them to the Lord. That message probably doesn't sell well today with a lot of people. I'm not saying it's, I mean, it's, it's, and I don't think it portrays the the level of love that God has for us. And I don't suggest that these pastors didn't understand that. But the times were of a different time. And the hearts that they were dealing with, frontier people, people that had come across the seas in difficult times, lost many people, deeply hardened hearts. Some of them had suffered a great deal. I think contextually this is it, it's an important lens to put on this because we're sitting on the cusp of potentially arriving at another point like that. And as we try to communicate to each other and, and beyond our communities of, of loving Christ, we're finding that we're running into walls, hardened hearts, but worse than that, cultish hearts. So I, I don't know that when I say all this, I don't know that the message here is to say replicate this, but I do think it's important to hear these sermons from a very important point of understanding the fire and brimstone sense that was being preached at the time that was the backbone 
to our nation and its founding. Now, here's here's the flip of it, and it's something to consider. Not provable, but it's something I feel pretty strongly about. One thing I've seen, and I've seen it in my own lifetime, in my own town where I live now, I grew up in this fear-driven concept of coming to the Lord. And it was an idea that if you were going to come to the Lord, you needed to come to the Lord, otherwise you're going to hell and the world was going to end tomorrow. It was a revelation mentality that was deeply embedded here when I grew up. And what that ended up doing was bringing people often to church, but they wouldn't sustain because the promises of the end of the world didn't come and the fear of the Lord was never made evident. And then worse yet is there was a principle of laying out the entire idea of God, that God was to be feared and they never encountered the true loving and powerful God. Don't get me wrong. God has wrath and don't think I'm not, I'm suggesting otherwise. But we also can see very evidently that God loves us infinitely. And only at that final moment does God bring down a wrath. And when he brings down a wrath, it's like, you want to start running for cover. So there's, I'm putting all this stuff in context because what I think may have, one could argue, let me put it this way, is that there was so much um, motivation to come to God under fear that following the war, there wasn't a deep root of faith that sustained it. And so we began, arguably, we began a pretty rapid decline in the strength of our pulpit post-revolution where prior to the the revolution, our pulpit was strong and vibrant, and it was bringing people to God and in preparation for a culmination event, which was the separation from England. And I think the pulpit was amazingly effective in that. It was necessary. The way their message was, was was in many ways the only message that could work. But sadly, I think one could argue pretty resolutely that what was left after that where people just kind of walked away from it. They're like, okay, we're done with the revolution. We're all done now. And God was what God was, and he helped us get here. Selah, let's move on. We're seeing that now. And this is something we have to be very cognizant of. And this is why I think it's so important that we, as we learn from the past, we hear these righteous sermons, we hear this powerful pulpit, which it was. But we also have to respect this other dimension of this, which is, We don't want to repeat history. We want to learn from history. And in learning from history, this is where we can look at this and say, okay, so what exactly do we learn from history? And that would be that I think that we need to be constantly pushing for a much deeper, much more intimate and personal relationship with God. Because I'll tell you, when you get to that point, politics don't matter. War is a thing. It passes. The one thing that never leaves us ever, no matter what the situation is, is our love, trust, reliance, and walking with Father God. That's the ultimate goal. So I I say all that because I wanted to put that in context for my motivation and really where God's led me to read some of these sermons. And it isn't just to say, oh, we need to go back there. I do respect the fire and brimstone power that they had in bringing people to the place. What we're find, we are all finding that same voice now, but it's not in the walls of the temple. And I think we can agree on that. I mean, one thing COVID taught us very clearly is so many churches were not in God. They betrayed the, that mission. And so now we're looking for that voice again, that strong, powerful voice that's elevating the warrior in Christ, at the same time building that deep personal intimacy with Father God and respecting the power and might of his wrath. So, and then one last note on that, and it's important to understand, is the one thing I do look at these sermons with, with a very respective eye, even though some of these places are pretty harsh in the motivation of like coming to the Lord in fear, one thing that is real is they have laid out a consequence and an accountability. And we need to work hard at that because so much of what we're doing now is going to be changed only through our accountability and responsibility in the walk with God. So just a few thoughts as we go here. Now, one last thing I want to touch on before I start reading. I've noticed a number of comments lately. And and I'm saying this very 
constructively and very positively. And, and I see a lot of comments saying to me, I'll get notes. I don't agree with everything you say, but um, I, I'm, I listen to every show. So here's my response to that. What an amazing, wonderful note to get from somebody. I would really hope that no one agrees with everything I say. I say things, I have a very strong opinion on things, but what is shared here should provoke thought, should provoke debate, and we should be able to respectively as Christians in the body of Christ be able to look at the world, see things differently and uniquely as God made us, but at the same time respect those views, have good discussions of those views, which in the hence, in the sense matures all of us. And I'm not always right. I Though that's not very often. I'm usually right. But once in a while, I might be wrong. Maybe. Maybe possibly. But um, that said, the it's, it's the importance of understanding that we should not be obedient to one word like mine. Okay? And in that part is if someone said to me, I agree with everything you say and I never deviate anyway, I'd be like, oh, this is concerning because this sounds more like a woke cult. And that's not what we're doing here. So those are just some of my thoughts, and I just you know it's, I I am I want you to hear from me that when someone says like I don't agree with everything you say, I'm like, awesome, that's fantastic, and I know most don't, but we're here for a common goal of pursuing that deep love in Christ, and with that we're going to see things a bit differently. But that's this just it is God made us perfect in His image and unique in each of us. So we're not going to see the world the same way. And we shouldn't because Christ is like looking at a beautiful, perfected quilt or a, a weave. And we're all part of that. So just some additional thoughts here. All right, let's jump into where we left off last night. As we kind of established in the in this sermon, a principle that, um, that Witherspoon is arguing is that essentially the, the wrath of man is a tool God uses to bring us to him. I, I, I mean, I think we could debate that. I don't know that he's dead on with that, but I do say that it's a very interesting perspective because from another lens, which would be a lens of me who has walked in war and others that have done it, I think they would agree. The wrath that we go through does ultimately lead most to an understanding and appreciation of the power of God. You know, that's saying that there's no atheist in a foxhole. There's so much truth to that, especially after a fire, after a real firefight. There's so much truth to that. So that's kind of where we've come through with a very, very well-developed argument to the place that ultimately God's wrath and that he's leading this to the in pointing to the coming war. Remember, the war hasn't started yet, and we're on the we're on the true edge of war and the war drums are beating and there's a lot of discussion happening. The British troops are now amassing. This is getting very real. The Declaration of Independence hasn't yet been signed. And so this is his big sermon to basically say, you know, first he's, his first treatise on this is the wrath of man and the, and the ills of man will be used in a way that ultimately honors God because God will use it to bring us to him. Now we get into part two. Proceed now, he says, to the second general head, which was to apply the principles illustrated above to our present situation by inferences of truth for your instruction and comfort and by suitable exhortations to duty in this important crisis. And in the first place, I would take the opportunity on this occasion and, and from this subject to press every hearer to a sincere concern for his own soul's salvation. There are times when the mind may be expected to be more awake to divine truth and the conscience more open to the arrows of conviction than at others. A season of public judgment is of this kind as it as appears from what has been already said. That curiosity and attention at least are raised in some degree is plain from the unusual throng of this assembly. Can you have a clearer view of the sinfulness of your nature than when the rod of the oppressor is lifted up and when you see men putting on the habit of, of the warrior and collecting 
on every hand the weapons of hostility and instruments of death? I do not blame your ardor for preparing for the resolute defense of your temporal rights. But consider, I beseech you, the truly infinite importance of the salvation of your souls. It is of much moment whether you and your children shall be rich or poor, at liberty or in bonds. It is of much moment whether this beautiful country shall increase in fruitfulness from year to year, being cultivated by active industry and possessed by independent free men, or the scanty produce of a neglected fields shall be eaten up by hungry publicans while the timid owner trembles at the tax gatherers as the tax gatherers approach. And it is of less moment for my brethren whether you shall be the heirs of glory or the heirs of hell. Is your state on earth for a few fleeting years of so much important moment? And is this as is it of less moment what shall be your state through the endless ages? Have you assembled together willingly to hear what shall be said on public affairs and to join in imploring the blessing of God and the councils and arms of the United Colonies? And can the unconcerned what shall become of you forever when all the monuments of human greatness shall be laid in ashes for, quote, the earth itself and the works that are, in, are, that are therein shall be burnt up? This is, a, this is kind of setting the argument for where he's going. And this is an important piece here to consider and reflect upon because in all the tremors of war, and this is something that we've even talked about here, that in all the tremors of war and all the preparations and threats of war, the one thing that can't be missed is the importance of salvation and the, and the preparation for that with everything we do. Ultimately, as I have said, and, I, and where I will extend from this, and I'm not going to say Witherspoon's going to say this, but what I take from this very clearly is if we take the situations of David or Joshua or we take Gideon or we take Moses or whoever, all of those actions end up being of, of wrath, if you will, or war are led by God's hand, not the heart of men. They're led by the heart of God in men, and it's so important to contextualize that. And when we understand that, we understand we are the subject of him, and the only way we are a subject of him is to be saved in salvation through Christ. Continuing. Wherefore, my beloved hearers, as the ministry of reconciliation is committed to me, I beseech you in the most earnest manner to attend to the things that belong to your peace before they are hid from your eyes. How soon and in what manner a seal shall be set upon the character and state of every person here present. It is impossible to know, for he who only can know does not think proper to reveal it. But you may rest assured that there is no time more suitable, and there is no safe, as, and there is none so safe as that which is present, since it is wholly uncertain whether any others shall be yours. Those who shall first fall in battle have, no, have not many more warnings to receive. There are some few daring and, and hardened sinners who despise eternity itself and set their marker at defiance. But the far greater number by staving off the convictions to a more convenient season have been taken unprepared and thus eventually eternally lost. I would therefore earnestly press the apostles' exhortation 2 Corinthians 6, 1, 2. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now the accepted time, behold, now is the day of salvation. One of the things that we need to consider in the context of this speech as well is what he spoke of in the first paragraph here. The tremors of war now upon the colonies. There is a true fear for many that has raked through the colonies. The British are ready to go to war. The colonies don't really have the resources nor the formal army to fight them, but they have the heart. 
And the heart is, uh, for many, is becoming a heart of vengeance and anger. So there is a lot of tempering going on in the speech. And he's talking not, not to go to war, but to make sure that salvation is put before them before they go charging off with their sword and musket. And this is an important consideration even for today. Is something that I've been, quite frankly, it has been a very unpopular message that I've put forth here in, in many of my shows, which is our Second Amendment right has become a cultish religion greater than God. And, I, and to me, when he's speaking this way, I'm hearing these sorts of words come out of this, that we must always root ourselves first in the Lord and in our loving Christ, and he shall stay and shall lead our hand, both. Very important principles, and I think it's a principle for any warrior. But you can imagine all the people here, so many Americans and colonists at this time were farmers. They never intended to be soldiers, and they're facing an army that's well-organized, well-funded, well-equipped, and now they're on the edge of going to war. There is a lot of uncertainty about the future, and what this is doing, in my opinion, as he's moving through this, is to assuage much of that and prepare for people mentally for the importance of the next step, and it's always first through salvation. Continuing, suffer me to beseech you, or rather to give you warning, not to rest satisfied with a form of godliness denying the power thereof. There can be no true religion till there is to be a discovery of your lost state of nature and practice and an unfeigned acceptance of Christ Jesus as he is offered in the gospel. Unhappy they who either despise his mercy or are ashamed of his cross. Believe it, there is no salvation in any, in any other. There is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Unless you are united to him by a lively faith, not the resentment of a haughty monarch, but the sword of divine justice hangs over you, and the fullness of a divine vengeance shall speedily overtake you. I do not speak this only to the heaven, daring profligate or groveling sensualists, but to a very to every insensible secure sinner to all those, however decent and orderly in the civil department, who live, live to themselves and have their part and portion in their life, in, in fine to all who are yet in state of nature. For, quote, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, end quote. The fear of man may make you hide your profanity. Prudence and experience may make you abhor the in intemperance and riot as you advance in life one vice may supplant another and hold its place but nothing less than the sovereign grace of god can produce a saving change of heart and temper or fit you for his immediate presence so again this whole conversation is speaking a lot to the many that are absolutely outraged at the at the crown they have seen what the crown has done this is post boston Boston Massacre, okay, these are, this is post, actually, the Battle of Lexington and Concord. So blood has already been shed. So arguably, the, Civil, the Revolutionary War has already started because it's actually Lexington and Concord that was the first shots. But the formal declaration has not yet been established by the colonies, and that's forthcoming two months after this sermon with the Declaration of Independence. So people are outraged, and what he's speaking to this is, is don't go into this war outraged in your heart, driven by the hatred of a monarch. You need to go in this with being saved. You have to have salvation in Christ and have that as your center point. So now he goes on to point two. From what has been said upon this subject, you may see what ground there is to give praise to God for his favors already bestowed on us. Respecting the public cause, it would be a criminal in, in, inattention not to observe the singular interposition of providence hereto in behalf of the American colonies. It is, however, impossible for me in a single discourse 
as well as improper at this time to go through every step of our past transactions. I must therefore content myself with a few remarks. How many discoveries have been made of the designs of enemies in Britain and amongst ourselves in a manner as unexpected to us as to them, and in such a season as to prevent their effect? What surprising success has attended our encounters in almost every instance? Has not the boasted discipline of regular and veteran soldiers been turned into confusion and dismay before the new and maiden courage of freemen in defense of their property and right? In what great mercy has blood been spared on the side of this injured country? Some important victories in the South have been gained with so little loss that enemies will probably think it was it it has been dis- dissembled, as many even of ourselves thought, till time rendered is undeniable. But these were comparatively of small moment. The signal, the single advantage we have gained by the evacuation of Boston and the shameful flight of the army and navy of Britain, was brought about without the loss of a man. To all this we may add that the counsels of our enemies have been visibly confounded, so that I believe that I may say with truth that there is hardly any step which they have taken, but it has operated strongly against themselves and been more in our favor than if they had followed on contrary course. While we give praise to God, the supreme disposer of all events, for his interposition on our behalf, let us guard against the dangerous air of trusting in or boasting of an arm of flesh. I could earnestly wish that while our arms are crowned with success, we might content ourselves with a modest ascription of it in the power of the highest. It has given me great uneasiness to read some ostentatious, vaunting expressions in our newspapers, though happily, I think, much restrained of late. Let us not return to them again. If I am not mistaken, not only the holy scriptures in general and the truths of the glorious gospel in particular, but the whole course of providence seen intended to abase the pride of man and lay in the vain glorious in the dust. How many instances does history furnish us with of those who, after exulting over and despising their enemies, were singly and shamefully defeated? The the truth is, I believe the remark may be applied universally, and we may say that through the whole frame of nature and the whole system of human life, that which praises most, that which promises most, performs the least. The flowers of the the, the finest colors seldom have the sweetest fragrance. The trees of quickest growth or fairest form are seldom the greatest value or duration. Deep waters move with least noise. Men who think most are seldom talkative, and I think it holds as much in war as in anything that every boaster is a coward. That's a, just a profound rebuke to the, those that were speaking so boldly about the victories of war at the time, which we know what ensues in this early part of the fight, the British did pull back a number of ways, but they returned with greater might, especially when they brought in the Hessians. So this is a, a strong rebuke and a reminder that we are going to war here, but we must remain humble. That's the meek warrior. Be mighty, but be quiet and be solemn. Don't be boastful and prideful because it ultimately will end up crushing you. And, and again, it's, it's great insight when you think about this at the time of where we were and already understanding that what was ahead was going to be a much more difficult and more difficult path to, to walk than that which they already had. So he continues, pardon me, my brethren, for insisting so much upon this, which may seem but an immaterial circumstance. It is, in my opinion, a very great moment. I look upon ostentation and confidence to be sort of an outrage upon providence, and when it becomes general and infuses itself into the spirit of the people, it is a forerunner of destruction. How does Goliath, the champion armed in a most formidable manner, express his disdain of David, the stripling, and and with his sling and his stone, one Samuel, 
6, 17, 42, 43, 44, and 45. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him for what was a was but a youth and a, and ruddy and and of a fair countenance and the Philistine said unto David I am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves and the Philistine cursed David by his gods and the Philistine said to David come to me and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field but how just and modest the reply Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come unto thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. I was well pleased with a remark of this kind 30 years ago in a pamphlet. This is now back to his talking, in which it was observed that there was a great deal of profane ostentation in the names given to ships of war as the victory, the valiant, the thunderer, and the dreadnought, the terrible, the firebrand, the furnace, the lightning, the infernal, and many more of the same. This is the author considered this the author considered as a symptom of the national character and manners very unfavorable and not likely to obtain the blessing of God of heaven. So this is a, a fantastic consideration in this in this sermon. And he's literally rebuking not the act of war, but the the arrogance that's going into and boastfulness that's being shaped around the wording and the things said, understanding that the power of the word is the power of life and death. This is a bold pastor, not afraid of fight, and he's but a great counsel going into this on the eve of war. So now point three. From what has been said, you may learn from the encouragement you have to put your trust in God and hope for his assistance in the present important conflict. He is the Lord of hosts, great in might and strong in battle. Whoever hath his countenance and approbation shall have the best at last. I do not mean to speak prophetically. But agreeably in the analogy of faith, the principle of God's moral government Some have observed the true religion, and in her train, dominion, riches, literature, and arts have taken their course in a slow and gradual manner from east to west since the earth was settled after the flood, and from thence forebode the future glory of America. I leave this as a matter rather of conjecture than certainty, but observe that if your cause is just— If your principles are pure, and if your conduct is prudent, you need not fear the multitude of opposing hosts. Wow. That phrase, I swear we should put everywhere, because that is literally where we are. I'm going to read it again. If your cause is just, if your principles are pure, and if your conduct is prudent, you need not fear the multitude of opposing hosts. Literally, patriots, that's where we sit right now as we face off against this seemingly overwhelmingly equipped and trained and prepared asymmetric fight with our government being totally despotic. We have the media. We have all these other places. All we have to do is focus on our cause as just, our principles as pure, and our conduct as prudent, all within the name of the Lord. Continuing, if your cause is just, You may look with confidence to the Lord and entreat him to plead it as his own. You are all my witness that this is the first time of my introducing any political subject into the pulpit. At this season, however, it is not only lawful but necessary. And I will willingly embrace the opportunity of declaring my opinion without any hesitation that the cause in which America is now in arms is the cause of justice, of liberty, of human nature. So far as we have hitherto proceeded, I am satisfied with the confederacy of the colonies. Has not been the effect of pride, resentment, or sedition, but of a deep and general conviction that our civil and religious liberties, and consequently in a great measure the temporal and eternal happiness of us and our posterity 
dependent on the issue. The knowledge of God and his truths have from the beginning of the world been chiefly, if not entirely, confined to those parts of the earth where some degree of liberty and political justice were to be seen. And great were the difficulties with which they had to struggle from the imperfection of human society and the unjust decisions of uh, uh, usurped authority. There is not a single instance in history in which civil liberty was lost and religious liberty preserved entire. If therefore we yield up our temporal property, we at the same time deliver the conscience into bondage. Again, a paragraph that's absolutely appropriate for today. And what a bold and powerful statement. He is openly stating from the pulpit his position politically. He's also giving something extremely important in this in defining what he sees as the reason of his confidence in the Confederacy of the colonies in their actions moving forward for liberty. And what is that? That it's not been affected by pride, resentment, or sedition. And in fact, it's a deep conviction that their civil liberties and their religious liberties have to be preserved. That's the question right now that all of us really, in my opinion, need to be rationalizing with. Because if we're being driven by pride and resentment or sedition just because we don't like something or the our government's not doing the right thing, we have to search our heart to get to the right place. I've said many times, this government needs to go. And I'm, I'm saying that on the levels that I'm very clear on, that they are violating every right given to us by God. And they're doing it wantingly, willingly, and they're enjoying it. And that is where the rights were given to us in the Declaration of Independence, reminding us that it wasn't just our right, it was our duty to throw off such despotism. This paragraph here is setting that framework around for the future Declaration of Independence. So we continue. You shall not, my brethren, hear from me in the pulpit what you have never heard from me in conversation. I mean railing at the king personally or even his ministers and the parliament and people of Britain as so many bar barbarous savages. Many of their actions have probably been worse than their intentions, that they should desire unlimited dominion if they can obtain or preserve it is neither new nor wonderful. I do not refuse submission to their unjust claims because they are corrupt and or profligate, although probably many of them are so because they are men and therefore liable to all the selfish bias inseparable from human nature. I call this claim unjust of making laws to bind us in all cases whatsoever because they are separated from us, independent of us, and have an interest in opposing us. Would any man who could prevent it give up his estate, person, and family to the disposal of his neighbor, although he had liberty to chess the wisest and the best master? Surely not. There is the true and proper hinge of the controversy between Great Britain and America. It is, however, to be added that such is the distance from us, that a wise and prudent administration of our affairs is as impossible as the claim of authority is unjust. Such is and must be their ignorance of the state of things here. So much time must elapse before an error can be seen and remedied, and so much injustice and partiality must be expected from the arts uh, and misrepresentation of interested persons, that for those these colonies to depend wholly upon the legislature of Great Britain would be like many other oppressive connections, injury, injury to the master and ruin to the slave." The management of the war itself on their part would furnish new proof of this if any were needful. It is not manifest with what absurd, absurdity and impropriety they have conducted with their own designs. We had, not, nothing to, we had nothing so much to fear as dissension, and they have by wanton and unnecessary cruelty forced us into union. At the same time, to let us see what we have to expect and what would be the fatal consequence of unlimited submission, they have uninformally called those acts lenity, which filled this whole continent with resentment and horror. 
the ineffable disdain expressed by our fellow subject in saying, quote, that he would not hearken to America till she was at his feet has armored more men and inspired more deadly rage than could have been done by laying waste a whole province with fire and sword. Again, we wanted not numbers but time, and they sent over handful after handful till we were ready to oppose a multitude greater than they have to send. In fine, if there, is, if there was one place stronger than the rest, more able and willing to resist, they're, they're made the attack and left the others till they were duly informed, completely incensed, and fully furnished with every instrument of war. I mention these things, my brethren, not only as grounds of confidence in God, but who can easily overthrow the wisdom of the wise, but as a decisive proofs of the impossibility of these great and growing states being safe and happy when every part of their internal polity is dependent on Great Britain. If, on account of their distance and ignorance of our situation, they could not conduct their own quarrel with propriety for one year, how can they give direction and vigor to every department of our civil constitutions from age to age? There are fixed bounds to every human thing. When the branches of a tree grow very large and weighty, they fall off from the trunk. The sharpest sword will pierce will not pierce when it cannot reach. And there is no certain distance from the seat of government where an attempt to rule will either produce tyranny and helpless subjection or provoke resistance and effect a separation. These words here are so on point for today. Powerful words and reminders. Even today in the distance, if we consider the distance of D.C. to the people of the country, by its own work in creating itself in almost like a hovel, it has distanced itself from the realities of the day-to-day American. They produce things only in laws, only in their own cycles, and only in their narrow optic of a place that we call District of Columbia. And they think they are righteous. The response times to what we need, to what they produce now, are sometimes years. And yet our distances are shorter and our response ability is faster than anything the colonies could have conceived. And yet they suffered the same problems. What does that tell you? That tyranny in any form is tyranny. That our founding fathers understood tyranny. That the the pastors of the time understood tyranny and they were witnessing it and it was all framed around the moral law of God. Today, I think so much of our struggle is that we've lost our way with the moral law. We don't see the enough through the lens of God and we don't have the experience enough to understand what true tyranny is, though that is coming to us in waves. And we are now starting to realize that our founding fathers understood very clearly that all forms of government ultimately descend to despotism or to tyranny. When enough time is given, governments seek to have power upon themselves and become drunk upon their own power. And in so doing, what becomes a a government by and for the people becomes a government that subjects the people to its own will, especially when the people become comfortable, complacent, and most importantly, drift from their understanding, their relationship, and their intimacy in the relationship with Father God. Continuing, I have said, if your principles are pure, the meaning of this is, if your present opposition to the claims of the British ministry does does not arise from a seditious and turbulent spirit or a wanton contempt of legal authority from a blind and factious attempt to the particular persons or parties or from a selfish, rapacious disposition and a desire to turn public confusion to private profit, but from a concern for the interest of your country and the safety of yourselves and your prosperity. On this subject, I cannot help observing that though it would be a miracle if there were not many selfish persons among us, and discoveries now and then made of mean and interested transactions, yet there have been comparatively inconsiderable both in number and in effect. In general, there has been so great a degree of public spirit 
that we have much more reason to be thankful for its vigor and prevalence than to wonder at the few appearances of dishonesty and disaffection. It would be very uncandid to ascribe the universal adore that has prevailed among all ranks of men and the spirited exhortations in the most distant colonies to anything else than public spirit. Nor was there ever, perhaps in history, so general a commotion from which religious differences have been so entirely excluded. Nothing of this kind has yet been heard, except of late, in the absurd but malicious and detestable attempts of, a, of our few remaining enemies to introduce them. At the same time, I must also, for the honor of this country, observe that though government in the ancient for forms has been so long unhinged, in some colonies not sufficient care taken to substitute another in its place, yet has there been, by common interest and common consent, a much greater degree of order and public peace than men of reflection and experience foretold or expected. From all these circumstances, I conclude favor favorably that the principles of the Friends of Liberty and do earnestly exhort you to adopt and act upon those which have been described and resist the influence of every other. The one thing that he points to here is that there have been Basically, he points to the whisper campaigns of the enemies that have tried to pit people against one another. That should sound familiar. We all are familiar with that now. That's done through media. That's done through infiltrators. And they, this is the same trick that everybody uses to tear apart a movement. Remember, the colonies were rising up, and the crown was doing everything it can with its agents to divide and conquer. That's how every power ultimately takes things down. Once more, this continues, if to the justice of your cause and the purity of your principles you add prudence to your conduct, there will be the greatest reason to hope by the blessings of God of prosperity and success by prudence in, by prudence in conducting this important struggle. I have chiefly in view union, firmness, and patience. Everybody must perceive the absolute necessity of union. It is indeed in everybody's mouth, and therefore, instead of attempting to convince you of its importance, I will only caution you against the usual causes of division. If persons of every rank, instead of implicitly complying with the orders of those whom they themselves have chosen to direct, will needs, will needs judge every measure ever over again when it comes to, to be put into execution, if different classes of men intermix their little private views or clashing interests with public affairs and marshal into parties the merchant against the landlord and the landlord against the merchant, if local provincial pride and jealousy arise and, and you allow yourselves to speak with contempt of the courage, character, manners, or even language of particular places, you are doing a greater injury to the common cause then you are aware. If such practices are admitted among us, I shall look upon it as one of the most dangerous symptoms, and if they become general, a presage of approaching ruin. Wow, those are words again that are, remin are echoed so true to where we are today. Last paragraph for tonight. By firmness and patience, I mean a resolute adherence to your duty, and laying your account with many difficulties, as well as occasional disappointments. In a former part of this discourse, I have cautioned you against the ostentation and vain glory. Be pleased, Father, be pleased farther to observe that the extremes often beget one another. The same persons who exult extravagantly or in success are generally most liable to despondent timidity on every little in inconsiderable defeat. Men of this character are the bane and corruption of every society and party to which they belong, but they are especially the ruin of an army, if suffered to continue in it. Remember, the vicissitude of human things and the usual course of providence. He, how often has a just, has a just cause been reduced to the lowest ebb 
and yet when firmly adhered to, has become finally triumphant. I speak this now while the affairs of the colonies are in so prosperous a state, lest the property itself should render you less able to bear unexpected misfortunes. The sum of the whole is that the blessing of God is only to be looked for by those who are not wanting in the discharge of their own duty. I would neither have you to trust in the arm of flesh nor sit with folded arms and expect that miracles should be wrought in your defense. This is a sin which is in Scripture styled tempted, tempting God. In opposition to it, I would exhort you as Joab did the host of Israel, who, though he does not appear to have had a spotless character throughout, certainly in the instance spoke like a prudent general and a pious man, 2 Samuel 10, 12. Be of good courage, and let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people and for the cities of our God, and let the Lord do that which is good in his sight. Patriots, this, these last couple paragraphs offer a very deep reflection that I would encourage everyone to take to prayer. And I'll share with you in closing tonight a challenge that God put to me this morning in prayer. I woke up this morning and, and as I entered prayer with very little tolerance for anybody dealing with this LGBTQ nonsense. In fact, I went so far as to tell Father that I'd be very happy to put him in a camp or put him down like a rabid dog. The answer that I got was unexpected, and it was this. Because my argument was they have totally altered and mocked everything that you created us to be. And his response was, but they don't know me. And I had to take a breath on this one because he's right, naturally. And so that leaves us with a challenge that I can't answer, but I can only convey. And these words that are spoken here at the end tonight are reminiscent of this. We can't approach this fight with prejudgment or pride in our heart. What's going to make a difference in our victory is going to be unity. What we're dealing with is a damaged people, so much so brought on by our own doing by walking away from God and allowing a government to rule over us rather than God himself. There are many people out here, whether they took the vax, whether they've been mutilated by choice or by by influence, that have, that have no relationship or have not known God. They don't have an intimacy with Jesus. I don't know what happens when somebody who has mutilated themselves proclaims to be transgender, but now is introduced to the love of Jesus, accepts Jesus. I don't know what that is. Do they remain a woman as they wanted to, or do they go back to be a man? I don't have those answers. But what I do know is what God challenged me this morning was, before you raise your sword, make sure they know who I am. I don't think those are words that are considered enough, even on my own behalf. And it's something that as I read through this, this sermon tonight, I'm reminded again of the power and the mightiness of the sword and the word. And so as we step into this next realm of fight, which is coming, as we feel as this era now, as they felt the drums of war, we feel them now. We have to check ourselves. We have to look deep within our heart. We have to make sure that we're rooted in God and his word and his love that he has for so many. God's wrath is real, but so is his love infinite. And in so doing, we have to see this world through his eyes and we're challenged to ask the question, do those that are running amok in this world, running away from him, even know who he is? And if not, isn't that a place for us to act? Let us pray. Father God, humbled tonight would be a word. As we reflect deeply on the place where our colonies were at, on the cusp of war, on an official declaration of war, as we tonight sit equally in another time 
on the cusp of war and a potential declaration of war by our own hearts against a government that has betrayed us and betrayed you. Father God, in this moment, we sit here humbly reflecting on our pride, our arrogance, our egos, our anxiousness at times to fight. And so we pray for that meek warrior, the one that has the skill, the talent, and chooses to sit quiet and wait until you lead our hand. Let us be reminded that the battles of greatness in, the, in Scripture, Gideon, Joshua, David, even Moses, all of that was by your hand, not by the hands of men. And so in these hours now, as we continue to move forward in preparation for whatever is to come, yet we feel it on our heart and soul. Let us be reminded that whatever is to come will be led by your hand, and that will be upon us in our heart to listen to you. Guide us, Father. Give us the strength and the mightiness that is needed for whatever we face, but equally we pray for the wisdom to hear your voice. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Patriots, we'll finish this tomorrow night. There's still some to go. And I, I think it's worth closing, finishing it up. It's an amazing sermon that has so much richness for our time. We're blessed that we've had these in our past. We had amazing pastors in the early part of this nation. And it gives us, again, an amazing glimpse into the times that were both different and yet very similar to where we are today. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We're at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue and crush the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I will see you tomorrow for Bended Knee. Until then or until the next time. God bless. Good night. Thank you. And out for now. Oh, I want to feel something. I just want to breathe again. Dive into the deepest end. Oh, I want to feel something. Let me get back in my body.